Uh, one of my friends, he made a comment to me a couple weeks ago that I think is a, a good place to start today. He asked, is there any sin that has corrupted humanity more than the sin of sexual immorality? We can look to the stories throughout the Bible to see the effects of sexual sin and its corruption. David with Bathsheba, where he took another man's wife, impregnated her, tried to cover it up once, failed, and ended up having him killed on the battlefield just so he wouldn't have to deal with that. Similarly, David's son Solomon turned away from following God in his old age because of his penchant for marrying lots of women. Sex, it would seem, it can end up dragging even the most faithful person away from God. And we can see that same pattern of sexual issues today. So many of the cultural perceptions of sexuality, they brush up against scripture. And it's important to be aware how scripture speaks to every situation. Sex is an idol for both singles and for married couples. Physical intimacy is treated as the ultimate fulfillment of our inward most longings. But in fact, it's not. We need to have a proper view of biblical sexuality so that we can navigate through challenging conversations and examine if our own perceptions of sexuality and sex are warped. This is not a morally gray area. There is clarity. We either live by biblical sexuality or we're choosing immorality. In order to have a consistent witness, we need clarity on what the Bible says and what biblical sexuality is and isn't. We can't call out some sexual sins while ignoring others. Otherwise, we'd be hypocrites. We can't take some sins seriously while accommodating others. In order to understand biblical sexuality, we'll need to start with a clear definition of what it is. So let's start with how our culture defines it. I've got uh, up behind me here the World Health Organization's definition of sexuality. It says, Sexuality is a, a central aspect of being human throughout life. It encompasses sex, gender identities and roles, sexual orientation, eroticism, pleasure, intimacy, and reproduction. Sexuality is experienced and expressed in thoughts, fantasies, desires, beliefs, attitudes, values, behaviors, practices, roles, and relationships. While sexuality can include all of these dimensions, not all of them are always experienced or expressed. Sexuality is influenced by the interaction of biological, psychological, social, economic, political, cultural, legal, historical, religious, and spiritual factors. That was a very long definition. They go on further to explain that the fulfillment of sexual health is a fundamental right for all humans. They define sexual health as, I don't have this one up here, a state of physical, emotional, mental, and social well-being in relation to sexuality. It is not merely the absence of disease, dysfunction, or infirmity. Sexual health requires a positive and respectful approach to sexuality and sexual relationships, as well as the possibility of having pleasurable and safe sexual experiences free of coercion, discrimination, and violence. For sexual health to be attained and maintained, the sexual rights of all persons must be respected, protected, and fulfilled. There's a lot to unpack there. It's on their, on their website is where I found that. And so I'm gonna narrow down, and I'm gonna kinda of unpack some of that for us so we don't have to read through it again. Um, first, we can see from these takeaways that the world sees sexuality as a central aspect of being human. 
that it's something of a catch-all term and it comprises the physical act of sex and reproduction, a person's gender identity, and sexual orientation. Additionally, sexuality is influenced by various circumstances in life, which would seem to imply that it's fluid. And finally, to be properly fulfilled in one's sexuality, each person must be protected and respected in the way that they express it. So we see from this cultural definition that there's a high degree of importance on sexuality and living it as a human. It's almost as if it's the core identity of a person and that their worth as a human is inherently tied with their ability to express their sexuality. Put a pin in that thought though, because we're gonna come back to it in a little bit. For now, let's contrast the who's definition of a, with a biblically informed one, which is a lot shorter. <laughs> Although the Bible does not have a concise definition of sexuality written out, a framework for one is provided. The Bible makes it clear that sex is only permitted within the framework of the one flesh union of marriage between a man and a woman. But people outside of marriage also have sexual desires. When do, where do those people fit? If you think about it, there's a period of time for every person when we're single. Whether that's at a young, period, a young age or old, we are all single at some point in our lives. Therefore, our definition needs to take that into account. It should be universally applicable to all of our lives because God is the creator of all humanity. And as such, we're obligated to live by his terms. Therefore, this definition that I'm going to be using behind us is going to be applicable for every person. Part of this definition is, it comes from Christopher Yuan's Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, which is a book that I would highly recommend checking out. Anyway, the definition is as follows. Biblical sexuality is God's design of humanity in his image, both male and female, to either chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. Chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage are the key aspects to this definition. Individuals who are single are called to chaste living, whereas those who are married must be faithful to their spouse. Now, we have something of a working definition here for biblical sexuality. But the question is, why is this such a big deal? A biblical definition of sexuality should be all we need, since following this framework would be simple enough, right? Why do we need to discuss it anymore? Well, there's more to our current state of sexuality than what we may be equipped to handle. When I was growing up, sex was not talked about in my family. My parents divorced when I was five and, and my dad lived in a different country. Neither my mom or my dad were willing or inclined to talk about sexuality. Therefore, I never had the birds and the bees conversation with either of them. Actually, as a side note, I had to look up what the birds and the bees meant in relation to sex because I had never known before. Um, anyway, I don't think either of my parents felt comfortable having that conversation with any of, any of us as kids. And so ultimately, I had to learn in public school. And I think it was fifth grade, eighth grade, and 10th grade that I had classes about this topic. I don't really remember much from those classes, but there's one thing that really stands out and I still remember. It was in my eighth grade class. The teacher told us that when you have sex, to do this certain thing, because you will want to have sex, and it's something that is expected for kids. 
13-year-old me was taught that sex was something that I was expected to have and that I would want to have it and that I needed to have it and be prepared for having it. There was no nuance there. It was just expected that since these kids would desire sex, they should be prepared to engage it safely. There was a cultural underpinning there that denying your desire for sex was somehow wrong to the extent that children were encouraged to pursue their sexual nature regardless of whether or not it was wise. Sex was taught to be a desire connected to one's personhood and that it shouldn't be denied. That was 19 years ago in Canada. Today it seems like there's been an even greater cultural entwinement between sexual desires and defining what makes us, us. Our identities are viewed as being intrinsically connected and linked to our sexual proclivities. Let's use the Human Rights Campaign mission statement as support for this claim. This organization seeks to ensure that all LGBTQ people are treated as full and equal citizens around the world. As part of their mission statement, they state, do I have a slide for this one? Nope, I do not. Uh, they state, HRC envisions a world where lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people plus community members who use different language to describe identity are ensured equality. Bisexual, transgender, lesbian, gay, and queer are specifically highlighted as words that define identity. It's clear that the current worldly understanding of our sexual desires cannot be disconnected from identity. This is not just for adults though. All we have to do is look up on youth.gov for more evidence of this connection. On its sexual orientation and gender identity topic, youth.gov makes the claim that sexual orientation and gender identity slash expression are important aspects of a young person's identity. Identity is once again shaped by sexual orientation. In both of these examples, we see that culturally, sexual identity is foundation to a person's whole encompassing identity. Who they are, who they view themselves as, it's inseparable from their sexual attractions. And that's not just limited to those people who identify as LGBT. The term incel, a portmanteau of involuntary celibate, has become a self-identifier for a certain group of individuals. This self-identified group is made up of men who upset that they do not have a willing sexual partner. The way they view their identity is wrapped up with what they see as the involuntary nature of their virginity. They think that they deserve to have sex and therefore they blame women because they won't give it to them. Their inability to have sex defines their identity and it defines the way they interact with women. All of these cultural examples demonstrate the extent to which sexual desire and preferences have become foundational to identity. And the culture also tells us that we are to celebrate a person's sexual orientation however it's displayed. So we see on the one hand that our culture positively links sexual orientation with our identity, as we saw with the HRC mission statement and the youth.gov, but there's a crack appearing in the worldview. The negative effects of this commingling of sexual desire and identity are specifically seen with that incel group. If sex and our desires for it define who we are, well, what happens when those desires are not met? 
the thing culture tells us is this positive influence that is going to help us instead stifles us. Our desires begin to entrap us. The only way we can feel fulfilled is by temporarily satiating your sexual desires. And this has had a dangerous consequence. The core of who we are has become, become unlinked from eternal truth. And it's instead been hitched to our feelings. Feelings of desire and emotional attachments now purport to define what embodies a person. Identity has shifted to becoming fluid and rooted in self-identification rather than an objective standard. Each one of us here lives within this culture and we can't escape it. We're called to be salt and light in the earth, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, 13 to 14. And avoiding the issue of sexuality, it doesn't bring people to the truth. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.15 to speak the truth in love. We need to know how to properly engage with this topic as a biblically informed person so that we can speak truth out of a love for others. The same way that I was being prepared for the possibility of sex in eighth grade, we need to be prepared to engage in these conversations. We need to be informed of the subject. We need to be prepared to engage the topic of sexuality in a biblically informed manner. God created humanity and he created sex. Therefore, we should expect that he would have a thing or two to say about it. And as a heads up, this first class, I'm not really gonna be digging deep into theology. My goal for today is just to give you a broad overview of the topic and kind of explain why this is important. Over the next few weeks though, we're gonna be spending more time exploring the history of cultural perspectives on sex and sexuality and where the, the church has made mistakes and ultimately how God intends for us to live out our lives as sexual beings. I wanna ask you a reflective question now though. The topic of biblical sexuality may seem vague and a bit disconnected from your life. I'm not looking for you to answer this question out loud, but just think about it in your mind. If someone were to come to you and inform you that he or she is gay, how would you respond? What do you think your instinctual gut reaction would be in that moment? Would anything change in your response if that person were your child? Would your response be anger? Maybe fear? Maybe you'd blame yourself, think you were, somehow were a bad parent that, this, that caused this. Or maybe you'd be inclined to affirm them. Would you even know what to say? If it was a friend, would you be better equipped to respond? Would you feel more comfortable answering them in that? Do you think your response would be the same? These are difficult questions to consider. I'm gonna change it up a little. What if the person came to you instead asking for advice about pornography? They tell you they're unhappy in their singleness or in their marriage and that they've been watching pornography as a way to help them feel sexually satisfied. That this is a means of comfort for them. Would you be more inclined or feel more comfortable to respond in that situation? The reason I ask these questions is because I want us to be thinking about our understanding of sexuality in general. What have you prioritized? What have you ignored about your understanding of sexuality? 
Over the past few decades, moral intuitions regarding sexuality have been refashioned and reshaped because of our relationships, because of the friendships we have and the way we interact with others. Jonathan Haidt, a professor of social psychology at the University of Virginia, explains that these moral intuitions are quick flashes of judgment akin to aesthetic judgment. One sees or hears about a social event and one instantly feels approval or disapproval. For example, if your pet were to die, would you intuitively understand that you don't eat it for dinner? Your response would be, I'm supposed to bury this. You don't think about eating it. Or you would instinctually know you don't use the sidewalk as a bathroom. That's just a gut instinct that we don't do. What has happened with sexuality, however, is that the cultural view has corrupted what humanity innately knew was wrong. Romans 1, 19 and 21 to 22 assert, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The plausibility structure of biblical sexuality has been undermined as an increasing number of Christians and non-Christians see the Bible's teaching about sexuality as no longer making sense. Their life experiences and their shared relationships with people who are working through these things have informed their view of sex. Experience and relationships are being prioritized over God's word, and the moral intuition we have as God's creation is being corrupted. As we just heard from Romans, the result is that people are becoming fools. Historically, culture has had a greater influence on the definition of sexuality than what is considered acceptable practice than the Bible has had. The church has had seasons where various topics are given more attention in the public sphere than others. Decades ago, sexual immorality was one of these things, and it was uh, vocalized by evangelicals. And out of, the, out of that season came the rise of the purity movement. We can see a small snippet of the result of that with a recent Pew poll. Oh, I went too far. Right there. So, a majority of the public say premarital sex is at least sometimes acceptable. So reading that, we can see a large portion of people think it's all right. And you might want to think and push back against this and say, well, although the biblical sexual ethic is not widespread, at least Christians are consistent in their biblical views of sexuality. That's also not the case. Only a third of self-professed Christians believe that casual sex outside of marriage is never acceptable. What does that say about the influence of culture on the way sex is perceived? It's becoming clear that sex is being treated as a mere recreational activity and not given the weight that it deserves. Christians have either had a low view of what scripture says on it or a poor understanding. I have one more slide to show you that I hope reinforces this idea that the biblical worldview is not understood. Christians, as we see here, is a broad category that it fits people who we probably would not agree with theologically. Yet as we see here, even evangelicals also agree that casual sex is sometimes acceptable. It would appear that the culture's view of sex is gaining, gaining ground even within the church. 
These numbers should rightfully shock us. This is the consequence of ignoring sexuality and failing to provide the, a, a consistent practice of, biblical framework, of, the, of the biblical framework of sexuality. And our first inclination arising from these statistics may, may be to think, oh, we can just embrace pragmatism. We can just ignore this altogether and avoid this topic. Of course, the thought would go, since we want to create inroads for the gospel and discussing biblical sexuality could upset people, we can just avoid those conversations altogether. If we do that, though, we're surrendering to the cultural idea of sexuality and we're admitting that our convictions are not well-founded. We're admitting that we no longer have a positive view of God's purpose behind sex, that we don't have a Christian vision for it. We can't sever ethics from theology. We'd be leaving people to walk in darkness without informing them the path they're following leads to destruction. We need to bring godly wisdom and hope into this conversation. God does have something to say about this topic. More than just the biblical framework for sexuality that I outlined earlier, we also see that scripture disputes the idea that our identity is tied with a manifestation of our sexual desires. We're supposed to see the, our identities in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm going to quickly touch on this now, but we're, we'll spend some more time in the upcoming weeks talking about this and fleshing this out. In Christ, humanity is a new creation where the old has gone and the new has come. The things that used to define us, our sins, our desires, and these things from the world, the transgressions that separated us from God, they no longer do. They no longer separate us from God. Jesus bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We are a new creation who God has called it his special possession, a chosen people. Therefore, contrary to what the culture says, pursuing our sexuality unfettered by truth, it's going to hurt us. The Bible makes it clear that sexual immorality is the path to destruction. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 reads, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There are several types of people listed there and several types of transgressions we see. Each of these words can serve as a characterization of a person's identity, and these people won't inherit the kingdom of God. Individuals who can be identified by any of those traits are also known by another word, sinners. Outside of Christ, our identity is in sin. It's tied with it. But as Christians, our identity is in Christ, not sin. So we know what not to do. This has been made clear. But simply telling you not to do these things doesn't really provide a positive vision for Christians' view on sexuality. It doesn't help you know why these things are wrong or how to deal with temptation or even why sometimes we struggle with thoughts of sexual desire. Instead, it would become a checkbox that we simply look to each day. Oh, I didn't do this. Check the box. Or, oops, I did this. I've got a 
I'm a sinner now. What do I do? I'm, I'm on the path to destruction. No, that would be legalism. And it's not a healthy way to live. Christopher Yuan ex- explains that the real Christian life is built on godly wisdom. It is much more than the avoidance of sinful behavior. He goes on, goes on further to state that if scriptural prohibitions are the only lens through which we see things, then we may well miss the gospel. Another Christian author similarly, similarly argues that we've unfortunately turned the good news of God's intention for human sexuality into a stale set of moral rules, a decidedly unevangelical thing to do. What then is the positive vision for biblical sexuality? Re-examining that definition I brought up earlier, that, that biblical sexuality is God's design of humanity in his image, both male and female, to either chastity and singleness or faithfulness and marriage, we can add on a purpose for sexuality. Sexuality is not just chastity and singleness or faithfulness and marriage. It's purposed so that you can understand the intensity of God's love for you. It's the means by which God communicates how deeply he loves humanity. Our sexuality foreshadows the joy and excitement we're going to experience in heaven. We're sexual beings because that points us to God. As you process what I just said, I have another question for you to consider. Do you think that God has the authority to tell you that you are wrong and that your own perceptions of life are wrong? Does he not only have the right to tell you how things are supposed to be, but to tell you that the way you think about some things may be incorrect? I think it's prideful to assume that we're right and that we don't need to be corrected by God. And I think the answer to that question is why people make sexuality such an integral part of their life, part of their identity, and why this topic is so important. Sex and sexuality have been placed on a pedestal, a pedestal that declares the only way to be truly satisfied in life is to bow down before it, to make it the object of our desire. But God tells us otherwise. He tells us that sexuality is not the ends of our lives. Sexuality is a means to knowing God and understanding his character, his sacrifice for his chosen people. You might be hearing what I'm saying and feel guilty or shame or even anger, but I want you to know that my purpose is not to fill you with guilt. Through Christ's work on the cross, we are all able to have a fresh start. We can all be a new creation by God's grace. We can't undo what we did in the past, and God does not expect us to fix those past mistakes. Jesus Christ, God's Son, came into the world as a human. He lived a perfect life, obeyed where we could not obey, and he did what we couldn't do, fulfilling God's law. He was put to death on the cross for our sins, but God raised him from the dead, proving that his sacrifice was sufficient. By placing your faith in Jesus, you have a guarantee of forgiveness and an eternal hope that can't be taken away from you, no matter how dark your past is. This is where the hope of biblical sexuality lies. We're not perfect people, but broken sinners. 
However, through Christ, we have the hope that God will sanctify us throughout our life. He's going to make us more like Christ as we live. Through Jesus, the things that seem so important become rightly placed and ordered in our lives. God becomes our priority. Everything begins to filter through our thoughts about prioritizing God in our life. That's where we as individuals have hope. Because God will certainly right every wrong and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, as Revelation 21.4 says. But there's another component to this hope beyond our own faith in Christ. It's not just an individual hope. It's communal. As Christians, we have a responsibility to help and encourage other people in this hope. The responsibility is the last reason I'm going to briefly mention today regarding why this topic is so important. We all know the difficulty of facing trials by ourselves. How difficult it is to go through on your own when you're facing darkness, when you're facing sin. Some of the deepest disappointments and challenges in life are connected with our unmet sexual desires. So sexuality is not something that we should be dealing with by ourselves. We're called to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, as well as weep with those who weep We can't treat this biblical sexuality topic as some taboo that we are not able or willing to talk about with other people. We must be prepared to bear one another's burdens, to help people through deep friendships understand what it means to pursue biblical sexuality. We have to be willing to help those and prepared to care for those who are same-sex attracted, for those who are despairing about their singleness, for those who are battling loneliness, and even for those who are married and have their own problems. Having a a biblical understanding of sexuality, it matters because, because God calls us to love one another. He calls us to love. We can't love well if we don't understand how sexuality fits within God's plan for humanity and how the gospel intersects that brokenness of our sexuality. So thanks for joining us for this first class. I hope it was helpful in providing a broad view of biblical sexuality and why this topic should interact with everyone's lives. This is an important topic, not just because we see it being poorly represented in our culture, but because God created sexuality for a reason. Sex and sexuality have been misapplied, and this has led to significant harm and abuse. This makes it a painful topic for some of us to talk about. And we want to recognize that and be with you in the pain you've experienced. We don't want to be ignorant of the reality that these struggles, uh, what what they mean. And we also don't want them to be repeated, which is why it's so important to work through what biblical sexuality is and isn't. All of us, because of sin, have had our understanding of sexuality skewed. And we want to open up this conversation about what God intended for sex and sexuality so that the gospel can be displayed in that. Over the next few weeks, Joe at the back is going to be giving a historical breakdown of sexuality. He'll dig into the past views of sex within Christianity as well as a secular culture and provide a deeper analysis of how our culture uh, we're in right now, it treats sex. Uh, I hope to see you there. And if you guys have any questions or feedback, here are our numbers. Um, just, you can shoot us a text. And that's, that's it. I've got some books um, 
to show you at the end, but I'll leave this up if anybody wants to take a, a photo of our phone numbers. So.